You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us, and for this, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, It is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burnings in anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offerings as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from his disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we come now in humility, um, yielded and waiting, uh, waiting to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. We pray now, even in a difficult passage, uh, one that is confusing and brings perhaps many questions, that you might bring some bit of clarity to us and to our minds, that we might not just have our questions answered, but that we might love you more, that we might worship you more, and that we might uh, live and love more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would do all these things now in this short time together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors. If I have not met you yet, uh, we are back in Exodus. If you have begun joining us since early December, Uh, You haven't heard anything of Exodus, but we've been going through this book for many months now together, and I am really, really glad to get back into it and get it to its completion. There's still much to do, though. Uh, 
just to get us back on the on-ramp here, uh, through no doing of their own, we saw in this book, God rescue a people out of Egypt, out of slavery, because of some promises that he had made to their fathers many centuries before. If you've been reading through Genesis and the Read Scripture reading plan that we've been reading through together as a church this week, you will have read about those promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, by displaying his power over and his strength over the Egyptian gods, though, Uh, In this book, Yahweh, God, showed that he is not only the true God of Israel, but he showed the world that he is the true God of the universe. He is without rival. And despite their unbelieving and complaining hearts, God brings the people to the foot of Mount Sinai, this mountain where they have now been for a long time. Only Moses is allowed to ascend to the top of the mountain where he receives the Ten Commandments and he Uh, brings these down to the people. And then in in chapter 19, God enters into a covenant with this people, uh, with the entire nation. He makes this nation a kingdom of priests or a priesthood of kings. And while the people are afraid, God is a terrifying presence for them on the mountain. They are excited. They say, uh, everything that God has said, we will do. We will obey. And they seem to want to mean it. So Moses goes back up to the mountain to receive the rest of the law, the rest of the instructions for the tabernacle and the the priesthood. And these can be some pretty confusing chapters. So you can always go back and listen to some of those sermons on the website or the podcast if you weren't here for for those. But those are essentially chapters 20 to 31 of this book. Uh, And in those chapters, those chapters have not yet been delivered to the people. While they received the Ten Commandments before Moses went back up to the mountain, now he is back on the mountain receiving what we've already gone through together in chapters 20 through 31. And he is receiving that, and uh, it's been a good while since he's been up there receiving it. And this gets us back into the narrative of the Exodus story where we are for the next three chapters. I thought we would get through all of chapter 32 today, but there's just too much, too much to do. So we'll break up uh, this chapter into two weeks And we'll get through the first half tonight, where you heard uh, Marcia read through verse 14, and then we'll finish up this very, very difficult chapter next week. And no bones about it, this is a difficult chapter. Uh, Some difficult stuff next week, but this week, uh, there is, after after the idolatry of the people, was God really going to destroy them? Was it like an empty threat? If Moses hadn't shown up and interceded, uh, would have God actually destroyed the people? Or was God just like pretending to hear Moses? Did God change his mind? Did Moses change God's mind? Does God change his mind? Well, here we go. Two halves tonight, and perhaps the titles of these little subsections might give you a hint at where we're going. We're going to think through this first half of, half of chapter 32 in two halves. First, we'll see an impatient people, and then we will see a patient God. So first of all, Verse 1 and chapter 32, an impatient people. We read, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember this is when he's receiving all the bit of the law and all the bit of the tabernacle and the priestly system and all that, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, his brother, and they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. They're ready to leave and they need somebody to lead them. We don't know how long Moses was up on the mountain. The irony here is just dripping thick. Yahweh has been the one who has been leading his people. Yahweh is the one who has led them to where they presently are. He's been leading them out of Egypt to this very mountain in his visible presence and in in a 
cloud or a pillar of fire, and now, finally, leading his people to enter into covenant with him. They essentially had a a wedding ceremony in chapter 19. Now it's the first few days after the wedding, and the honeymoon is not going as Israel would have liked or would have hoped. And the people leave their new covenantal spouse on the honeymoon for another. And maybe uh, unfaithfulness on the honeymoon isn't quite the the best uh, timing of the illustration because they are still right here at the altar. They are at the presence, the location where they just, we don't know how long ago it was, but the location where they said their I do's and they are ready to leave their spouse, their new spouse. And so they come to Aaron and they say, make us new gods. This one isn't doing it for us. They say, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what, whatever became of him. They're like snide. They're dismissive of Moses, the very one who has spoken on their behalf, the one who has delivered them and led them to this place. He's gone. Or if he isn't gone altogether, they are ready to ditch him. They're ready to get rid of him. So Aaron tells them to bring, just bring them all of, or bring him all of their gold. Now, two things about this gold jump out, us, out, out to us here. One, we've been hearing so much of gold in these chapters before this. So much of what is going to be making or filling the tabernacle is about gold, like the lampstand, the table, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant. All of these things are to be either made of or overlaid with gold. Of course, Israel hasn't yet gotten these plans, but we, the readers, should have lots and lots of gold overlaying our imagination as we consider the true and right worship of Yahweh. And then Aaron tells the people to bring them all of their gold into like this parody of false worship. Second, where did Israel get all of this gold? Well, we know from chapter 12 that the majority of this gold actually came from Egypt when God used the people of Egypt to give the people all of this Egyptian gold on their way out. This was God uh, blessing his people with the wealth of the people's captors. And then, just a few short weeks later, they take the good gifts from God and they twist it into selfish idolatry. So Aaron takes all this gold and he fashions an image of a cow, one of the most common religious symbols of the Egyptian gods, and He fashions it into something that they were perhaps comfortable with, something that they had seen in religious worship in Egypt, perhaps even worshiped themselves for many years. And they take the gifts that God had given them, and they quickly turn these gifts into idols. Now, what becomes really interesting here is that we assume that Aaron has broken the first commandment. Remember the first commandment of, you shall make no other gods before me which there's certainly some of that in Aaron's declaration or the people's declaration, that these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. But then confusingly, Aaron says at the end of verse five, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, shall be a feast to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So it seems more likely that the second commandment is what is being broken here by this worship of this golden calf. The second commandment of you shall not make any carved image or any image of a likeness or anything in heaven. Very few ancient cultures actually thought that a statue or an idol carried with it inherent spiritual power or might or something. They were representations of a spiritual being, an unseen spiritual being. So, like we thought about when we thought through the second commandment, it appears that Aaron is saying, Yahweh and Moses 
they've left us. So let's make a representation, an image of Yahweh that we can see, that we can, he, he's left us, he's not around anymore, so let's just make something that is kind of like him, that represents him, or perhaps even more diabolically, we'll decide what God is like. We get to decide what we think he is like, something that we can touch and hold and manipulate and actually get Yahweh to either come back or to do whatever we want him to do. The next morning, they make offerings to Yahweh, and then after these offerings, it is eating, drinking, and playing, is what it says, which is euphemistic for just the worst of the worst of what you could possibly imagine. Unrestrained, partying, unrestrained, hedonism, all under the veneer of spiritual worship, of something that God wants us to do. They have become a parody of the people that they were to become. Now, before we move on to the second half of this chapter, I want to lean on Philip Ryken's notes on this chapter in which he makes six observations of how and when we too regularly, just like these people, fall into sin or idolatry. We fall into sin when first we do what God tells us not to do. God had very clearly given the first and second commandments, and then we don't know how much longer after receiving them, but nevertheless, after receiving these two commandments, the people just do whatever they want. When the word of God is very clear in what he would have for us, and then we decide, yeah, no thanks. I know better for what is, for what is my own good. God, your word has come clearly, but your word must not be good, or it must in some way be lacking, or it must in some way not have all of the facts. Your word doesn't apply to me anymore, either because culture has changed or something in my life, some circumstances in my life has changed. So for whatever reason, whether things are difficult or it's a weird stage in my life or for whatever reason, I am exempt. I'm exempt from God's word. It doesn't apply to me. Perhaps, maybe not even saying I'm exempt from God's word for the rest of my life, perhaps even on a moment-by-moment basis. I say God's word doesn't apply to me in this moment for whatever reason. So I'll ignore what God wants for me and I will make myself and my word the voice of authority for my life. And this is what the people have done. Second, we, like them, can fall into sin and idolatry when we don't do what we promised God that we will do. In chapters 19 and chapters 24, they had promised obedience to God, but it was seemingly just lip service. In his sermon in Acts 7, Stephen says that the people in this day, their hearts were still turned to Egypt, is what he says about them. It seems like they were only willing to obey when everything was just going great, when everything was going exactly the way that they wanted. Faith in God wasn't required for them. It's just like follow him as long as it's yielding good results in your life. But as soon as that changed, then their worship changed. Of course, though, the golden calf episode didn't come out of nowhere. It only revealed what they already believed. One fourth-century church father says that the people here, they worshipped openly what they had already been worshipping in their hearts. So they had been worshipping the self in their hearts for however many centuries prior, and now they are only now just beginning to worship the self openly. In other words, we don't just need forgiveness for external bad actions. We need transformation, a complete internal overhaul of everything that we love. We don't need God to just forgive us of our sins. We need God to forgive us of our sin, our condition. 
God doesn't merely require lip service. In fact, he hates lip service. He wants true and right worship. Third, we fall into sin when we do not trust God to know what he's doing. They have doubted altogether that he is doing what he's doing in the timeline that he should do it. By grabbing control of what is right versus wrong in either distrust or impatience, we show that we think that we actually would have a better handle on the universe than the one who created the universe. We know the timeline of things and how they should work. God is either wrong about my life or he's asleep at the wheel, he's immoral, he's incompetent, so I guess I'll just make and worship the things that I think will make me happy or will give me meaning. R.C. Sproul says, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. So we fall into sin when we don't trust God to know what he's doing, so we just make things and do things our own way. Make gods who will not ultimately have any sort of judgment or hold us accountable in any way. Fourth, we fall into sin when we do what is popular instead of what is right. We don't know what's going on in Aaron's heart, but it sure seems like he is just giving in to the whims of the people. Much more on that next week. But we, like him, rather than with settled conviction, like Martin Luther, who may or may not have said, but he should have said, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Rather than that kind of conviction, we more often look at the world around us and then become convinced, yeah, actually, I think what the world is doing and believing is actually better and right. We might even look around at other Christians and become convinced that what they're doing is actually good and right. Surely it's not that bad. How often can we, how often can I just like smack on a veneer of spirituality, smack on a uh, self-confidence that Surely what I'm doing, God approves of and even uh, loves that I am doing or how I'm acting just to placate our consciences. Like with Israel's, like their worship to Yahweh that was then immediately followed by debauched hedonism. It can just as easily become the case with our modern understanding of sexuality, our worship of sexuality as self-fulfillment, as self-actualization, we too can just smack on a veneer of God's approval or it's not that bad. But that's like a can of worms that we just can't open now. Uh, Go back and listen to the Sermon on the Sixth Commandment if you'd like to think more about that. But lastly, we fall into sin and idolatry when we forget what God has done and go back to past wickedness. We confessed earlier of our forgetfulness. But how quickly do we forget on Monday morning what we confessed and professed to be true on Sunday evening? How quickly do we forget on Sunday night before we are going to bed tonight what we have confessed and professed to be true now in this hour? Spiritual amnesia washes over us, and we not only forget that God is great and greatly to be praised, and we forget that he is good and he is for our good, but we even forget that God exists altogether. We just go about our lives as if he doesn't. The Christian life, though, is a life of remembering, of intentionally giving ourselves means to remember that not only is God good, but that he actually exists altogether. 
to grow in our trust and love for him. Otherwise, the amnesia, the, the dementia sets in. Life becomes disorienting. We're not sure which way is right. The memories of who God is and what he has done become a little bit foggier, a little less clear. We might even forget altogether, which is why David writes in Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, he's preaching to himself. I will remember. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Had the people preached this kind of thing to themselves, with this kind of conviction of remembrance, surely they would not have found themselves here with a golden calf at the foot of the mountain. But of course, they don't remember. They don't trust God. They make gods in their own image. Rather than living as the image of God that God had created them to be, the representative rulers of his kingdom, which of course, this is the most ironic part of this whole thing. If you want to see an image of God, any one of the Israelites just could have looked around and looked at their fellow Israelites. God had created them to be his representative rulers of his kingdom. Instead, they make something else that they can handle, that they can manipulate. And then by doing so, they get to become the judges of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. They reject God altogether, and they want him pushed out to the suburbs of their hearts. And so how will God respond? And an impatient people who will live and do and worship whatever they want with no conviction, with no loyalty to their Redeemer and to their King, how will he respond? It may not seem like it initially, but he will respond with patience. So secondly, a patient God. So the camera has been focused in at the foot of the mountain, zoomed in, there is loud music, it's chaotic, and then the music begins to fade, the camera zooms out, and it slowly begins to pan up to the mountain and then zoom back in to where Moses is meeting with God. It's quieter up there, but God's anger is deafening. God tells Moses all that's happening down there. And then in verse 9, he says that they are a stiff-necked people. This is the first time that this adjective gets used of the people, but it will become a pretty regular adjective throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The image is that of a donkey or an ox who has a yoke on its neck, and rather than submitting to and feeling the leading of the one who is driving the wagon, this animal has a stick, a stiff and stubborn neck. It will not be led. Israel is just going to do what it wants to do and go where it wants to go. So because this is the case, God essentially tells Moses, he says, hey, just stay here. Stay here for a couple minutes. Leave me alone for a couple minutes, and I'm going to go down, and I'm going to consume them with my wrath. I'm going to ultimately just destroy them, and then I'll start over with just you. After all that God has done to rescue this people for his worship, after all that he has done to bring them out of slavery that they might... uh, worship him, and they might be a means of blessing to the entire world. Uh, After all the promises that God has made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the people might be God's nozzle to water a barren and fruitless and dry land, the people have rejected this role. They clearly want nothing to do with receiving God's blessing and then expanding God's blessing. So God says, I'm done. I'm going to start over. You'll be like the new Abraham, Moses. Rather than calling them Israelites after Abraham's 
grandson, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. We can just call these new descendants like the Mosesites. They'll be the children of Moses. And there's absolutely no indication that God doesn't seem totally serious. There's no sense in which this is like the disingenuous parent who is trying to get their three-year-old to leave Smith's or the grocery store and say, okay, well, I'm walking out. Guess you'll just have to stay here at Smith's. All the while, no, no, child, no parent has ever left a three-year-old at the grocery store. This is a disingenuous threat. This is not what God is doing. God appears set to do this when Moses speaks up. And Moses speaks up on behalf of the people. He appeals to God's glory. He appeals to his reputation. In Egypt, in Canaan, he appeals to the promises that God had made to the fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And after doing this, in verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, the word, word relented has famously been translated in many, many different ways in English Bibles. Several translations say, and the Lord changed his mind from this disaster. Anybody have that in front of you? Yeah. Um, the King James actually says he repented from this disaster. Because when a human repents of something, that human is recognizing the path on which he is going and then changes or turns from that path onto a different path. Clearly, it can't be that God was like about to sin, so most modern versions have opted for the word that is similar but is a little uh, softer than repented. And since we, when we use that word, it is not just changing, but when we use the word repent, it is changing from sin to something different. And so instead, we changed that P to an L and just said he relented, he, he turned, he changed his mind. So what do we do with all of this? On the one hand, and in addition to the countless texts in the Bible which describe God's omniscience, that he knows all things from eternity past to eternity future, we also have places that would seemingly contradict what's going on here in Exodus 32. Numbers 23 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If God says that he is going to do something, you can take it to the bank. Bank your entire soul on the surety of his promises. He will not change his mind. And that is comfort to our soul. 1 Samuel 15 or Malachi 3, God is not like us. He does not change. So, ah, yes, the internet blogger points out. Yet another example of contradictions in the Bible, which is supposedly without error. Dumb Christians for thinking that. I was in a place like that. Um, maybe not holding my own blog. Like, I don't know. My atheist blog dot Christians or gullible idiots dot blogspot dot com or something. But uh, sometimes, like for a good year or two of my life, while well, I was a seminary student, actually, I'd get to a place like this in the Bible, a, seemingly contra a seeming contradiction, and be like, ah, it was kind of shaking to my faith. And then perhaps I would read myatheistblog.blogspot.com and be like, and it was even more shaking to my faith. But my disposition began to change from a cynical opponent to 
humble confidence that when I got to a place like this, it was a little strange at first, but getting to a place where I would think, you know what, I don't quite understand this right now, but I know that there is a good explanation. Even if I don't know it yet, I should read and I should study and not just take my atheist blog, dot blogspot, all the, this guy's word for it. As if the church hasn't been aware of and wrestled through these very same problem texts for centuries and millennia. So what is going on? Well, one scholar says, from one perspective, it would be just and fair for God to break the relationship and just walk away. But from another perspective, that would be unjust. Why? It would be unjust in terms of his own character because he has made covenant promises to Israel. He would be right to destroy them in his holy judgment, but he has pledged faithfulness to them. The guys at the Bible Project have been especially uh, helpful for me in thinking through this section. This chapter is just placing us squarely in the middle, in the middle of a paradox. You know, like a paradox of like an, an immovable object and an irresistible force. Which one would overpower the other? Well, neither, because it's a paradox. So to put it in human terms, God is kind of stuck here between the character of his holiness and the promises of his grace, which is essentially the question of the entire Old Testament. How will God be simultaneously both just and merciful? This is the question of the entire Old Testament. How can he be both at the very same time? And so God is inviting Moses and then therefore inviting us as readers into that paradox. Like, think about it. God didn't have to tell Moses any of this, did he? Like at the outbreak of false worship, at the outbreak of sexual immorality at the foot of the mountain, God have, could have just responded with swift and right judgment. He didn't need to tell Moses, hey, leave me alone for a couple minutes, Moses, while I go and do this thing. The picture the narrative paints isn't one of an irrationally angry God who is out for blood, but boy, thank goodness that Moses was there to step in on the people's behalf and stop him from doing something irrational. No, the picture here is one of patience. One scholar says Moses is not depicted as arguing against God, but rather as participating in an argument within God. Now, that's not to say that Moses and God, Moses and Yahweh are getting like a giant pros and cons list out of whether or not he should be just or be merciful. He's not inviting Moses into helping him figure that out. Now, the narrative exists here to show us the paradox, to show us the quandary, and then even offer a way forward. So while we shouldn't say, thank goodness Moses was there to change God's emotionally out of control mind, we can actually say, though, that it was Moses' prayer, it was his intercession, his mediating on behalf of the people that actually changed the course of God's action. His prayer to God actually changed God's mind. But now we're right back into the wild west of atheist blogosphere, the supposed contradictions of God's character and his actions, the passages that we have describing God not changing his mind are nearly always comparing God with humans. Humans change their mind all the time for fickle reasons that don't make any sense. God does not do that. 
He cannot be compared with humans and how we change our minds. And how do we change our minds? R.C. Sproul suggests that there are only two ways for why and how humans change our minds. Let's think about it. We change our minds for two reasons. One, we receive some new bit of information, or two, we are coerced. So, Sproul's famous illustration is that if I come up to Skylar and I say, Skylar, give me your wallet, and he rightfully says no, and then I say, okay, well, here's the deal, though. There's a guy outside that I'd really like to buy dinner for, and I forgot my wallet, and so, bro, can I, can I have your wallet tonight and, and buy him some dinner? And Skylar says, I was not going to give you my wallet, but now I have some new information of what's going on and the reason why you need your wallet. So I have changed my mind. Here's my wallet. The second reason that Skylar might give me his wallet is if I come up to him and I say, Skylar, can I have your wallet? And he says, no. And I say, okay, but here's a gun. Uh, And then I'm not really asking for it, but he, there's some, something new has occurred, and he realizes that I was not going to give Nathan my wallet, but now I realize I need to give him my wallet, so here's my wallet. Now, God holds all knowledge. There is no new information that can be added to him. He is not unaware of his promises that he made to Abraham, and oh, thank goodness, Moses reminded him. He is not unaware of what will happen to his reputation in Egypt or in Canaan. He does not change his mind like we do when we get new information because there is no new information that God can have. And God holds all power. Moses, nor any other human, can coerce or manipulate God to do what they want him to do. Cannot coerce him to do anything that would contradict his own character. So God can change his mind but he can do so in a way that doesn't quite make sense to us. Because the only way that makes sense to us is in terms that we understand as humans, categories that we can relate to. God being outside of time and being sovereign over all things can change his mind in a way that doesn't contradict other areas of scripture that say he doesn't. But as Exodus 32 shows us, our prayers can actually change his mind in a way that he has sovereignly ordained. Nothing can be added to God, but he invites his people into effecting real and actual change. Very rarely in the Bible does God act and do something in which the people have not asked him to do this. Certainly happens sometimes, but very rarely. We can say that Just as God has ordained the ends, the the end point, he has ordained the sparing of the majority of the people at the bottom of the mountain, he has also ordained the means through which that comes. He has ordained that Moses would really and actually intercede, without which we could say God would have really and actually destroyed the people. We're in the deep end, everybody. Moses isn't trying to talk God into something that he does not want to do. He is interceding and bringing about God's action of what he had always intended to do, his patient mercy. The problem, of course, as the narrative progresses, is that the people will get no better. In fact, they get worse. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, 
the reality of the situation shows us that as we know God and ourselves in increasingly clear ways, that we are actually no better off than Israel. And at the end of Deuteronomy, a couple more decades of the story, Moses himself is going to die. He's not going to hang around forever to continually intercede on behalf of the people. In fact, he'll show himself to be angry, to be self-righteous as well. While he is a model example for us of trust in God and obedience, he himself needs a mediator too. So the only way that this covenant is going to survive and then even be transformed outwardly and broadly and then inwardly and deeply is if we get another Moses. Is if we get an answer to the question of the Old Testament of how will God both be just and merciful. If we get a better Moses, who Tim Mackey says, will stand inside the very heart of God and advocate that God will stay true to his promise. Someone who is so in touch with the divine will that he can participate within the divine dialogue. The good news of the gospel is that God has given a new and better and eternal mediator. Yet another commentator says that it's as if God said, go down, Jesus, go down. Go down because your people, the ones I gave you from all eternity, have corrupted themselves. They are all living in sin. They've turned away from my law to worship themselves and to worship other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. And Christ Jesus came, and Christ Jesus did, and Christ Jesus is doing just that. He lived and he died and he rose that he might receive the just wrath of God from your sin as your substitute. Like every song that we sang about this evening was proclaiming that reality. In Romans 8, we read, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding presently for us. He's there not trying to talk God into something that he would rather not do or begrudgingly do begrudgingly trying to convince him to forgive you of your sin, to adopt you as a son or daughter. No, but being one with the Father, he is calling the Father into what he intended to do all along by the power of his Spirit to save and welcome sinners into the very life of the triune God. Robert Murray McShane once famously said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And the reality is, Even though we can't hear him, he is. And that's just the wildest part. Unlike the people who who were still terrified of God, who were begging Moses to speak to God for them, if you're a Christian, if you have had your sins forgiven through faith in the work of Christ, and your life has been given to him with your allegiance, you are actually united to Jesus. His death becomes your death. His Resurrection becomes your resurrection. So as the risen Lord is praying for you, even now, praying for increased faith, praying for increased hope, praying for holiness, and that the Spirit might do all of this in his people, when we pray, we are actually joining in that work that Jesus is already doing. We are joining in to the life of the triune God. 
Our prayers are not as we, I think, so often think of them as like, uh, excuse me, God, like I hate to bother you, uh, but there's this thing that I need to talk to you about. No, that is not at all what is happening. For those who are already united to Christ, our prayers are just momentary join-ins of what Jesus is doing for eternity. Of Jesus coming and welcoming, hey, come and join me in what I have been doing for you and for the universe. Join me right now. Which is how and why prayer is so effective in being the means to accomplish God's sovereign ends, which brings about real and actual change, but actually swimming in the very life of God. Our union with Christ is fixed in his work, but then we deepen our communion with the triune God through prayer, delighting in life with him in prayer. All right, we're just getting going. The rest of Exodus, certainly the next two and a half chapters, are we're just going to continue on in the deep end. Uh, so if we need to like, get some noodles or little puddle jumpers, some floaties, uh, that'll be great. Uh, we can keep having these conversations in our GCs, some good books out here to consider uh, thinking through these things together. But join us back here next week. Uh, it'll get deeper and it'll get uh, more difficult before it gets even easier. Uh, but let's, as God, God's people, just swim. Swim more deeply into, the, into lives of trust, into lives of worship, in the lives of delight in the life and the work of the triune God together. God, we are floored by your grace, by your patience, by your mercy, but not just that you would um, send your son Jesus to give us a reset, to give us a try again, but that you, Lord Jesus, would come and live and die that you might work on our behalf, that we might be united to your work, to your life lived for us, for your death died for us, to now your resurrection life forever. Lord Jesus, even though we might not hear it, help us to be more and more aware of your intercession for us, certainly in the forgiveness of sins, but even now into our greater sanctification, into our becoming more and more like you of us walking away from images that we have made in our own mind that demand our worship, but that we might become more and more like you, the true image of God, the representative, the ruler on behalf of the Father. Help us to know this and trust it and become more and more like you in this way. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.